0: I'm Ellen Limbader.
1: I'm Jake Morecambe.
0: Welcome to Think Sustainability, where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. On the show today, we're talking food waste. How many times do you go to the supermarket to buy something, only to get back home to realise you already have it?
1: All the time. I have like five peanut butter jars in my pantry at the moment.
0: Well, that needs to stop. Those food buying habits are exactly what we'll be looking at a little later on.
1: Also, you'll hear about the culling of our furry kangaroo friends. Oh no! And how our biodiversity could suffer if we keep losing them.
0: But first, whip out your notepad because it's time for a lesson in.
1: How to compost. This is something you've been on my case about since we started this show, Ellen. Starting up a compost. I know you have one, but maybe this will give me an incentive to start one at home.
0: About time. If you won't listen to me, I'm hoping that you listen to these experts.
2: Hi, my name is Jenny and I'm a Senior Environment Officer at the Green Living Centre. Hi, my name is
3: Suji. I'm the Senior Environment Officer at the Green Living Centre.
0: At my house, we put the typical stuff in the compost. Your food scraps, eggshells, leaves. But there's other stuff you can put in there that might surprise you.
3: Vacuum cleaner, dust. You can put in there. Like anything that was alive. Hair. You can put hair.
1: Whoa, wait. Hair.
3: You can put hair in there? And a chair as well. Yeah, hair. You can put hair into your worm farm as well. How fun and yummy for the worms.
0: (laughs) I love this. Next time I get my hair cut, I'm going to check if my hairdressers have a worm farm or compost out the back. Better yet, I'm just going to pick up my hair droppings off the floor (laughs) and take them home and put them in my own compost.
1: Kind of gross. But, oh, I have an electric shaver. I could just stand over my compost and shave my face and just let the hair fall in. But let's get back to the point. There are some things you can put in the compost, and I'm sure there are some things that you can't. So let's go back to Suji and Jenny and let them give us the lowdown on composts.
3: Quite a lot of your food scraps, if you're new to composting, you generally don't want to put in any meat products, dairy, even a lot of like food with oils, chilies, onions. You really wanna use, put in the pre-prep type of food scraps. Um, Once you get a little bit more confident in it, you can start adding in other things, but really it's not recommended to put meat in. It would attract things like vermin that you really don't want in your compost
1: how common is it for vermin to surround the the compost bin like is that something that people face a lot
3: well because we you know in the inner city unfortunately rats are a problem but if you keep your compost in a good condition so basically if it's you know not too dry it's got the right moisture levels and you, you're not putting things in there that will attract the rats you should be fine there is a way that you can keep the vermin out if you still have a problem you can put chicken wire underneath it and that kind of helps them from digging underneath and going in there but it's just also making sure you tend to it quite often so keeping it active and turning it and knocking it every once in a while it just makes it uncomfortable for the rats to to live in it
1: so we've got the bin obviously there's a soil that you put in there what are the other materials that actually make up a compost
3: right so to start it out the thing is when you're actively doing your compost, you're making the soils. The way you start it out is you've got your compost bin, which would have it's like a regular garbage bin but without a bottom. You sit that on your grass or preferably somewhere on the ground so then all the worms and things can come up and then you put a layer of of like sticks and and things like that that creates say a bit of air layer down the bottom and then you can start putting food And your leaves and grass but there's a formula for making a compost I mean it's not like an exact formula but you have to have a ratio of nitrogen to carbon you know that sounds very scientific but the nitrogen is mostly like your food the green leafy stuff like all your food and then the carbon if you think of carbon as kind of like dry brown material so it could be dried leaves it can be shredded newspaper something that gives the compost a bit of structure because if you just put food in it would just turn mushy and acidic and pretty I guess manky generally it's like a two two carbon to one one nitrogen type balance but you know it doesn't have to be exact you just have to keep checking it so you want to get that balance and if it starts to smell a bit acidic and a bit pungent put more carbon in there shred up some newspaper um, mix it up
1: what are some of the things that people get wrong as opposed to not just throwing things that aren't meant to be in a compost what are some of the things that people do wrong and the compost might fail sometimes
2: So there's that mixture, getting the right mixture of carbon and nitrogen-rich materials. So commonly what happens, too much food waste in there without enough of the dry material will mean that the compost might start to smell. And that's a real barrier for people. No one likes a smelly compost in the backyard. Uh, The other thing is having the right amount of air in the mixture. So in order for the microbes to work, because it's not only that mix of carbon and nitrogen, they're sort of like the basic components of the compost recipe, if you like. But to that, you're actually then, in a sense, they're coming up from the soil, you might add some compost into it as a starter as well when you're building your compost. So some completed compost goes in. Then you're getting worms, you're getting macroorganisms, getting microorganisms, you're getting fungi, all of those things help to break the material down and they work under the influence of oxygen so they need there needs to be air in the mix as well.
1: What are the main differences between a worm farm and having a compost?
2: When people come into our shop front here it's one of the most common questions that we're asked. What will work for us? And we, we have actually three particular items that we sell here that help people deal with their food waste so there's the compost bin there's the worm farm and we also sell bakashi now each of those deal with a different type of situation in terms of household situation and different types of of food or otherwise what we call green waste which includes the lawn clippings and things like that so for the compost bin it's really about how much space do you have And in the very densely populated inner city, that's a real concern. Some people simply don't have the space for a a compost bin. The second consideration is, do you have access to the carbon-rich material? Again, if you, for example, live in an apartment, it's pretty hard to come across dry leaves. So you're probably... But you might have a balcony, perfect. A worm farm's probably the best for you. And then for some people... Again, they don't even have a balcony space um, and so the bakashi is a type of solution to that. The bakashi bin takes only food waste but you can put meat and dairy in that. So it's not; it works through a fermentation process but at the end you need some space to in the yard or somewhere in your garden, your apartment block garden, to actually dig that material into the soil so that the whole composting process is completed.
1: Composting is not only, in my opinion, a food waste issue, but then an energy issue at the same time. Because if you're chucking it out and then it's being transported somewhere and then the whole process of separating rubbish and then if it goes to landfill, putting it into that. So there's a lot of exertion that happens with waste that isn't composted.
3: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's all related and, you know, lowering carbon emissions or working on, on that. It's almost every aspect of your, you know, your lifestyle. So it's food, it's transport, it's your lights, it's, yeah, it's everything's
2: And that carbon's valuable. When it goes into landfill, the carbon that's useful is going into the air to pollute the atmosphere. So what we need to be doing is bringing that carbon back down into the soil where it has much more value for us. So I think So you're right, we're wasting food from a number of different levels and why don't we just try to close that circle?
0: And that concludes today's lesson. Have you been convinced to start a compost, Jake?
1: I'll think about it, but I'm really liking the sound of starting a worm farm.
0: Well, tune back in next week where we can pay a visit to some of our squiggly little friends.
1: You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SCR 107.3. So we've looked at how we can manage food waste in our own time with a compost. But what if we could stop food waste altogether?
0: Well, how big of an issue is food waste? I had no
4: idea about the scale. No idea about the quantity. No idea that a third of all food produced globally goes to waste. It's as if you took your food... That was on your plate and you divided into three thirds and you took a third and put it into the garbage bin before you ate it. That is what we do.
5: Fruit salad, yummy, yummy. Fruit salad, yummy, yummy. Fruit salad, yummy, yummy. Yummy, 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 yummy. Fruit salad.
1: Remember when you were a kid, what would your parents say about food? Eat your fruit, eat your vegetables, you have to eat your greens before you can have some ice cream. What about don't waste your dinner? From a young age, we're told to not waste our food and that we should be thankful for what we have on our plates. So why now as adults are we wasting so much food? And how much exactly are we wasting? Chop up some melons and put them on your plate.
4: Eight to ten billion dollars worth of food goes to waste in Australia. That's every year. That's today. Globally, that figure is in the trillions.
1: That's Ronnie Khan. She's the founder of OzHarvest, a social business that specialises in food rescue.
4: We waste one in five shopping bags. It would save each of us $1,036 a year if we were smarter and did our shopping better. So the interesting stat is that if food waste was a country, it would be the third biggest emitter of carbon emissions.
1: That country would place just behind the United States and China, with China alone in 2013 emitting over 10 million tonnes of CO2 into the atmosphere. But enter OzHarvest who are reusing food waste before it comes landfill and is emitted as carbon.
4: So we collect food from delis and takeaways and boardrooms and hotels and supermarkets and manufacturers, producers and growers. We tap into food, dairy, fresh fruit, fresh vegetables, poultry, packaged goods, dry goods, bread, liquids, everything that you consider – and that food we deliver out to over 850 charitable organisations nationally, and we make sure that that food goes directly to benefit disadvantaged Australians.
1: But taking leftover food from suppliers hasn't always been so easy.
4: When I started As Harvest, when it came to the supermarkets or some of the big food producers – there was a lot of pushback. We can't possibly do that. So in New South Wales in 2005, in ACT in 2008, in Queensland in 2009, and South Australia in 2009, we had laws amended to allow good food to be given away for free without any fear of liability. So every agency that we deliver food to signs a consent form that they understand that they're receiving food in good faith and that... They have to take care of it, and all of our food containers have a sticker on it that says the food has to be used within 24 hours.
1: So, we know that supermarkets and suppliers have a lot of food that goes to waste, but what about us at home? Why do we waste so much food?
4: We have been brought up, and I'm 100% sure that perhaps your parents understood better than you do, because what's happened is we're such a consumptive society now. Our supermarkets are open from early morning until late at night. We want to walk in at midnight and have the same choices when we walked in first thing in the morning. We don't understand when we buy a two-for-one. The greengrocer's offering two-for-one lettuce. We buy two because we think that's cheaper, but what happens at the end of the week is the lettuce has gone grungy and slimy in your fridge, you throw it out you think oh yeah that cost me a dollar but in fact the fuel the water the embedded energy the labor that lettuce was not a 2 dollar lettuce it should have been a 20 dollar lettuce and we don't know that
1: ronnie says one of the simplest things we can do as shoppers is
4: don't go shopping without a list how many times Have you gone shopping without a list and thought, oh, do I need a can of chickpeas or not? Oh, I'll just buy one in case, which now adds to the sixth can of chickpeas sitting in your pantry. We probably don't even use the one that's at the back of the cupboard. We just use the first one. And two years down the track, we look and we say, oh, those chickpeas were from three years ago. I'd better throw them out. So we have an issue with labeling and we're trying to address the whole notion of labeling because your grandmother and mine didn't have a sticker on our milk that says this milk will go off at 12 o'clock. Your grandmother smelt it. She used her senses. She cooked with it. She turned it into buttermilk. She did something with it before it went off. And what we do is we pick up a carton of milk and say, oh, it's out of date without even tasting it and throwing it away. And that's what children do now, and that's what so many of us do.
1: Writing a shopping list is one thing, but there are some innovative ideas on the rise that could help us waste less food. Melissa Edwards is from the UTS Business School, and she was working with a number of business students to come up with ways to avoid food waste. Here are some of their ideas
6: smart systems that could be implemented in kitchens for example where you enter the food as you're purchasing it or at the point of purchase and um, as it's planned into menus. Uh, Some of these innovations have actually been you know adopted not directly from our students but you know there are websites where you plan the menu out and then you know the exact ingredients that you need and then you can order that online and then it's delivered to you so that that's one way of being more efficient in the food that you consume and then the food that you ingest and consume to avoid waste so other solutions were more at the point of commercial distribution of food Um, So thinking about the way that we create smart demand and supply systems with commercial centres being the point of distribution, how do we better match supply and demand of food rather than just supplying a certain amount of food and hoping that it's consumed? That could be enabled through technologies. And then there were, of course... These um, social enterprises which exist as well, um, some of them where food waste can be reused and in a product, that's then made available for commercial sale.
1: One such social enterprise is...
6: Eat Me Chutneys. It's a B Corp. They're a social enterprise and they're also Fair Trade certified. They're a locally based mother and son duo who reuse food that's very close to the end of its life. And they make a chutney, they hand make it, they package it locally and they distribute it locally as well. In terms of food waste avoidance, you're addressing the problem of of that food going into landfill. Some
1: places around the globe already have anti-food waste dumping practices in
6: place. Massachusetts, for example, they brought in a rule uh, in 2014 where any commercial provider that was you couldn't d- dump more than one ton of food waste. And so there's actually a, an incentive there for commercial providers to reconsider what they do with wasted food. So composting is one, but then also redistributing food that's not used through things like Oz Harvest and other post collection facilities is another way of uh, ensuring waste of that food going into landfill.
1: Melissa Edwards from the UTS Business School. So we've heard from overseas in terms of food waste, but where do we stand?
4: Third in the world in terms of waste. We're up there appallingly. We're appalling. So we are wasting our resources. And that's why we are so committed to educating, to shifting, to changing behaviour. Because until... All of us take responsibility. Nothing is gonna change. Yes, we need to change the labeling laws. We need to change and have clarity around when a product is good until. But it's us who has to use our senses and our confidence again.
1: It's time to put
5: the scraps away.
1: Ronnie Kahn, founder of Oz Harvest.
5: And wash the spoon.
1: How much do you know about kangaroo culling, Ellen?
0: Uh, Not a lot, really, aside from the fact that there's there's just too many kangaroos.
1: Well, that's not necessarily true. Daniel Ramp is the director of the Centre for Compassion and Conservation at UTS, and his research is finding that kangaroo numbers are dwindling.
5: Our team has been trying to understand... Why when you have aerial surveys conducted by governments that then try to extrapolate the numbers of animals that they're seeing and getting very high numbers, when we go and survey on the landscape that we don't see them? That's not a question we have a robust answer to yet, but it's an answer that we think is really, really important because we can certainly go and map areas where there are no kangaroos. And yet the... the way, the methodologies that the governments are using to estimate population sizes ignore all those gaps. One thing that's very clear is that policy worldwide is really suffering from an absence of evidence-based science. And that's not just with kangaroos, but it's whether it's with killing of grizzly bears or coyotes or badgers or or, or anything. What we see is that policy is often being driven by politics. And there's now a very strong push to try and rectify that with good evidence to enable the decision makers to make good decisions
1: because we don't want to wake up one day and realize we have no kangaroos
5: left well absolutely and i I mean i think having spent the last 20 odd years working with kangaroos i find them amazing animals i don't necessarily expect that everybody would, would would think that everybody's got their favorite animal but at the end of the day there is a resilience in them that as australians we should admire and that that resilience, even though it's definitely there, we need to be careful that we don't push these species over the edge.
1: What is our national stance on the culling of kangaroos? Or it's different from state to state.
5: That's right. Each different state has a different approach to the killing of kangaroos. Kangaroos can be killed as part of a commercial kill, which is where animals are shot and then used. their products are used, either meat or skins either for human consumption, mostly pet food, and some skins go into the production of shoes or soccer boots or things like that. Then there are animals killed as part of a license to do harm, and that varies by state or by region. And that's where landholders apply for licenses to shoot kangaroos because they believe them to be impacting on some attribute of their property, whether it's a crop or a fence or something like that.
1: So do we have a general number on the amount of kangaroos that are killed on a year, I guess a rough estimate?
5: Uh, For the commercial kill, the statistics have typically been, over the last decade or so, around about 3 million animals. But that doesn't include uh, young at foot, uh, animals that are killed when their mother is killed, or pouch young. So... that number could be another 800,000 or so more. There has been a decline in the number of females killed officially as part of that commercial kill, but we don't really have any good statistics on that yet. As far as the number of the killed is licensed to harm, we really don't know, and then illegal. The legal. So the number could be anywhere up to 10 million. Don't know.
1: So for these people, the farmers essentially, who have these license to kill or these licenses to kill for the kangaroos, Why do they get them in the first place?
5: There's obviously a lot of history to this and our research team at UTS has spent a fair bit of time looking at not just the ecological impacts and and the numbers that are being killed, but also a lot of it's to do with the the social context around the colonisation of Australia by Europeans and the acclimatisation processes that were put into place to change the landscape to something more English, I guess so kangaroos were ex- routinely exterminated and there were bounties on their heads to eradicate them from areas and that's why we you know that's why a number of species have gone extinct and some are in endangered today because of that process secondly from a uh, a farming point of view there was the, there's been a long held perception that if you're going to be uh, raising sheep and cattle that to have another grazer in that system will obviously reduce the yield that you can produce and that is not necessarily going to be a good, good thing, particularly in times of drought. And so landholders typically don't want to have anything that they may perceive to be competing with competing with sheep and cattle. The good science that we've done, though, shows that situations when that might occur are actually quite few on the ground. We do know that there is some competition when times get tough, typically because stocking rates of sheep and cattle are perhaps a little excessive. So there needs to be space, Is is the fundamental answer there,
1: and they've been given what you've just explained, framed as pests almost.
5: Well, that's right. So, and in fact, in the legislation, they used to be described as pests, but that's diminished somewhat. However, you can still get a license to do harm to to wildlife, on the proviso that those animals are being a pest to your to your land.
1: How easy is it for people to get these licenses?
5: Very easy. So, all you have to do is fill out a form. Basically, you just have to tick how many animals that you want to kill, tick the reason um, that you want to kill them. There is some written obligation around trying non-lethal methods, but it's not enforced. So, you don't really have to have tried anything that doesn't include killing.
1: When it comes to this sort of thing, it almost seems as though people think there's just... This exponentially growing number of a certain amount of species. So if they're killing a kangaroo here or there that comes onto their land is disrupting their grazing or crop growing process by killing one, it won't do anything. But I think the main thing is to look back and see what's happening to the species entirely. Is that something you consider to be bypassed?
5: There is certainly misconceptions about what kangaroos do. I mean, you read in the media all the time about kangaroos being in plague proportions, that they grow during drought and that they're highly fecund super breeders that, like rabbits, for example. Um, but this just isn't the case. They're, in- they're actually incredibly slow breeders. Typically, females only might produce or raise two or three animals in their lifetime. So growth rates are one aspect that tend to be misunderstood in the community. But also this this idea that um, the killing that does occur really isn't influencing populations. And there is some debate about... uh, Some scientists believe that there are more kangaroos in Australia today than at the time of settlement. And the reasons that they give is that they claim that the opening up of the landscape, creating more pasture, means that there's more food. They also claim that um, because of the the putting in of watering points, so dams and those kinds of water troughs, that, that that has increased kangaroo numbers because they've got access to water. Both of those things are actually incorrect. Kangaroos rarely drink. Uh, and there are eastern grey kangaroos, for example, are a woodland species. They have to have trees. They don't occur in pasture and they don't actually like to be where sheep and cattle are anyway. So there there is some debate and so there's a lot of confusion not only within the science community but also within the public and we really need to be focused on what's happening to these iconic amazing animals they're they're so behaviorally intelligent they have strong matrilineal female societies uh they hand down their home ranges to their do- from mother to daughter they don't move very much they like they like their home and there's a lot of good things about them in the landscape. They're important for controlling and suppressing fires and just being generally good ecosystem service engineers.
1: So what would our natural ecosystems look like if kangaroos were completely culled off? What sort of change would that make to our biodiversity?
5: oh that's a that's a good question i, I mean I, I'd rather not contemplate it because um, I'm hoping it won't happen. There's a lot of emphasis that, for example, our group at UTS is now spending a lot of time thinking about well who are the winners in modern ecosystems and how can we restore the balance within those ecosystems so that as humans our only we can avoid this interaction which is about killing because that tends to be this Um, tool that we use for solving all of our problems whether it's killing cats or carp or dingoes or kangaroos or camels or horses our answer is to kill everything and that's not good for the animals that 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 we share the the land with but it's also not good for us.
0: Daniel Ramp director of the Center for Compassion and Conservation at UTS
1: Thanks for listening to the show. Think Sustainability is produced with the assistance of the University of Technology, Sydney and 2SCR.
0: For more info on what you've heard today, head along to our website at 2SCR.com forward slash Think You
1: can also subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app Just search for Think Sustainability.
0: I'm Ellen Lebeder.
1: I'm Jake Morecambe.
0: See you next week.
5: At Crust Gourmet Pizza Bar in Piermont we pride ourselves on serving quality gourmet pizzas. Experience our new Simply Better range using fresh spelt and wholemeal base, paddock to plate lamb and beef with locally sourced fresh produce. Try one of three new pizzas including biltong spiced lamb, harissa hummus chicken and wagyu Sugar. Visit crust.com.au to find out more.
4: Crust Gourmet Pizza Piermont sponsors 2SER 107.3.